Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Let's look at our announcements. Jared bringing the message this morning. Pastor is away visiting family and speaking at the dedication services of the church of his sister, that his sister attends in New York. What town is that, by the way? Rochester, Rochester New York. <clears throat> Today is our communion service. After the morning worship, we'll take a 10-minute break, which is our custom, and regather when you hear the music. I'll be taking charge of this. That sounds like a coup almost, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't take it that way. Uh, no, no Bible study tonight and no uh, choir practice. Uh, if you haven't already done so, take an empty baby bottle located on the foyer table, fill it with money, and bring it back on Father's Day. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. You'll see Andrea's number there again for contact person. Uh, the adult Bible study this Friday, June the 8th at Cramden Park. Bring your snacks and bug spray. June's social event, drive-in movie night. That's at the US 23 drive-in. And you can sign up on the helps board. Um, that's Friday, the June the 15th. And you'll be watching the uh, prayer chain for updates on the caravan. Social planning group will meet at the Armstrong home June the 5th at 10.30. See Jess if you're interested in helping. No children's church class today and no children's church on Communion Sunday. Next week, Jess and Mercy. New uh, uh, days of praise are here with the berries on the front. That's the new one. And also, um, if you can help, we need to have the air conditioners installed in the windows upstairs. So summer is upon us. Um, another page of announcements. Number 11, uh, nursery workers. Changes are coming to the children's ministry and we need two more volunteers. See Jolene if you're interested in helping. Thanks to Adam Tam for repairing the air conditioner and to Dale and Dr. Ed for the project on the front there. That's a big, that's a big deal. Um, and also to Dan and Jess for their work on the nursery. That's progressing. Pam for her work on the flowers and anything, anybody we've missed. Thank you for the, all the work around the building. Always a project. If you'd like to contribute to the nursery makeover, uh, check out the wish list at Amazon. You can see the, the address there. And the list is under Jessica Armstrong, Michigan Church Nursery. All right. Anything else? Jolene. Okay. So right at... Right after church, between the services, or right after yeah, church? Okay. Okay. Right after church, between worship and communion, upstairs. All right. That's all. I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation this morning. Uh, Revelation chapter two. Read verses one through seven.
Let's stand together and open our service with prayer. Ed, can I ask you to open for us today? Thanks. Dear Lord God, Father, I just thank you that we can address you. Thank you for your son. Please take your brown hymnals and turn to number 76, 76 in your brown hymnal. ago when I didn't get you. Go ahead, Marcy. That is the title. Let's see if I can find it. In the brown. Thank you. 
555 on the ground. Mercy, do you have a reason for that one this morning? You just been thinking about it this week? Okay. Is that the right one, Mercy? reading this morning is from 1 John, the second chapter, and we'll be reading 15 and 17. 
If you'll stand with us as we read the scripture. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. That's page 1900 in your pew Bible. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting, or what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. May God have his blessing to this holy and inspired word. Take your brown hymnals again and turn to 289, 289.
Uh, the title of the sermon today is Do Not Love This World. I know it's not in the bulletin, so I thought I would tell you. Um, be in prayer this morning again for our pastor who's at that special service, and uh, it's been a hard week for him. And uh, I think that God's going to bless their service as well. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for the beauty of each day. Thank you for this day and for your will that holds all things together. I pray, Lord, that by your strength today and by your spirit, you'll speak to us from your word, and that, Lord, that you will help us to see uh, where our affections lie. I pray, Lord, that they are with you. I pray, Lord, that you'll open your word to our hearts, change us by it, mold us into the image of our elder brother. We ask this in his name and for his glory and our good. Amen. We have an ancient foe, a nemesis that has been ever-present, ever-pressing, ever-persecuting the people of God for all of the existence of mankind. This enemy was originally beautiful in design, form, and function, having been lovingly made so by the Creator himself. And yet, for all its beauty, it was subjected to the curse of God and its beauty was greatly diminished. Now, originally, you may have thought I was describing Satan, another of our ancient foes, but you've probably figured out that I am describing the world. And truly, it is not the physical planet Earth that is our enemy, but rather the collective influence and subsequent wicked direction of the whole of mankind that stands to do God's people harm. In reality, we as a collective race are one of our own worst enemies. We all have three great adversaries in our lives, the evil one, our individual evil self, and this evil world. And as we continue in this life, we are warned to be ever vigilant against these three foes. And I would venture that as I have progressed in my own sanctification, I have been at times more vigilant with greater and lesser intensity concerning all three, I would assume that the same is true of you. I would offer that it is this world that is the more often neglected of the three overall. Its attacks can be quick and piercing, but the majority of attacks in our age seem to come at us at a slow, methodical, and consistent press against our character. And like the ever-constant pressure from a raging river pushing against the dam with a minor crack, one day the dam will fail and the flood will overtake the village who never bothered to repair the damage. Brethren, the world hates God. And if the world hates God, then the world hates you too. If the world is an enemy to God, then the world is an enemy to you. Have you made peace with the enemy? Are you on guard against its attacks against your soul? Sadly, our lives are probably more indicative of peace when there is no peace. If you are not actively engaged in the battle against the world, one must then wonder if you are more a friend of it. And James 4 verse 4 says that to be friends with the world makes you an enemy with God. And you don't want God as your enemy. And can't I be friends with both? God has declared the world an enemy and it is his prerogative to declare what our allegiances should be 
as his children. The world is no friend of Christians. The reason the world is no friend of Christians is that the world is full of unregenerate people. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their very unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And later in Romans 8, 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is this hostility of man's natural mind against his creator that causes such avarice. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. John 15, 18 through 25. Brethren, this is the reality whether we observe it or not. This is the reality whether we believe it or not. We may not sense this hostility against God in the lives of our unregenerate friends and family or the general populace around us, but according to the truth of Scripture, according to God himself, it exists in everyone apart from the family of God. Jesus said concerning our time here, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word for tribulation actually means pressed, the idea of constant pressure being applied. Now, if something is being pressed by another thing that is shaped in the same way, there isn't any conflict. But we have all heard of the square peg trying to fit into a round hole, and we know it's not going to fit. But what if the square peg is under constant and considerable pressure? Eventually, a breaking point ensues, and that square peg loses a great deal of its squareness and is ultimately forced into the hole. However, for the people of God, we're to take heart that Jesus has overcome the world. So in essence, the pressure from the world to either conform or die is not going to go away, but we are not going to give in to the pressure because of Jesus' victory over the world, not due to our own strength to resist. 
God describes our situation as pilgrims in a strange land. The world's history is certainly plain about how aliens from other countries are treated when they are in strange lands away from their homes. They are often attacked, ostracized, or in the very least tolerated. And as we look back through the history of Christians living in this foreign land, how have we been treated as a whole? And I think we must agree that although we are currently living in an age of grace for the people of God, the world has repeatedly tried to exterminate God's family. That is its normal response to the people of God. Books such as Fox's Book of Martyrs and the Martyr's Mirror remind us of our brothers and sisters in the faith who were gruesomely put to death for believing in God. Quite frankly, the putting to death of our family by the hands of other people proves to us the obvious fact that this world is not heaven, this world is not home. Beyond these obvious points of hostility, the world is no friend of ours due to some more common issues. These issues plague both the redeemed of God and the unregenerate. The first of these common unfriendly traits of the world is the fact that the world is cursed by God. The curse diminished not only the world around us, but also ourselves. And even though we are the redeemed of God, we continue to struggle with the effects of sin in our own lives. God did not promise to remove the effects of the curse the moment we were brought into the family of God. No, we continue struggling with the original effects of the curse of God, just like the rest of mankind. Genesis 3, 16 through 19, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. <clears throat> And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Everything we do on this planet, we're basically bound to fail. Every living thing dies. We labor over our work just to produce flawed results. The ground rebels against us as we toil for food. We are so accustomed to this amount of toil and failure that the world offers that we incorporate it into our planning. And I often wonder what work is going to be like in glory. I am sure there is work to do. There is nothing evil about work in and of itself. God made the earth in six days, and that was real work. And he pronounced his work good. The Lord Jesus Christ came and did his work on earth, and that was good too. And although I can speculate on what work will be like when there's no curse, I must now live in a world where everything is toil and labor and pain and exhaustion. And furthermore, as we age, these issues intensify, not diminish. As we perfect our abilities to do things, our physical bodies decline and we're not able to put our experiential knowledge to work properly. How frustrating is that? Secondly, this world is passing away. 
God has determined an expiration date for this world. This is a temporary home for all people. It is this expiration date that causes all things to have perceived value. Because there is no permanence, there is an underlying feeling of futility. In fact, all people experience this whether they are Christians or not. Solomon also experienced this futility. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Ecclesiastes 1, 14 and 15. Christians often look to Solomon and his wisdom to show us the importance of chasing after the right things in life, but I would offer to you that his wisdom extends even for those who do not know Christ. Solomon was the king with practically unlimited resources. It says in scripture that he denied himself nothing and that he did whatever his heart wanted to do. And he did it. At the end of all these things, after all the things he had made, his judgment about all that he had done was that it was meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 23 I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. And this also is vanity. It is not just the fact that we pass away, but also the fact that this world has no permanence. Ultimately, everything that mankind does will pass away and perish. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 13. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Only one life, it soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brethren, this world is no friend of ours because everything that we do here, no matter how noble, no matter how much time and energy we spend working, no matter how seemingly important it may be, it only exists for a temporary time. One day, this entire world will burn. Whatever mankind has made that has lasted until that time will still be destroyed. This is a very real sense of futility. All of our work is ultimately in vain. And again, this is true for every human being, Christian or otherwise. We need to be vigilant against the world. The world attacks us in many different ways. Some attacks are overt, while others are subtle. The overt attacks on Christians today are becoming more and more prevalent. We hear news of Christians being persecuted for their faith daily. 
We hear about the Coptic Christians in Egypt and how they meet in fear at times. We hear of our Christian brothers and sisters in China who meet secretly in houses for fear of the government coming in and taking them away. Violence against the people of God is on the rise again. God has been gracious through the ages by providing times of grace and peace for his people, but he has warned us in his word that things are going to continue to get worse and eventually become like the times of Noah, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And let me tell you, I believe America is very close to that right now. Morality is in the eye of the beholder. If you were a student of history, you already know how quickly a nation can turn against a subculture within itself. Once that subculture is identified as a threat, it is dealt with and exterminated. We cannot think of that because of our country, we cannot think that because our country was founded on godly principles that we will somehow be protected from the avarice of godless men. No, America is just like any other country. We are not a theocracy. Therefore, we are doomed to fail. Someday, if our country exists long enough, Americans will come looking for their Christian neighbors in order to kill them. We should not place our trust for protection in the founding principles or in the Constitution of the United States. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8. Brethren, if the time of tribulation arrives here during our lifetime, we must be prepared. We must be vigilant and we must be ready to run. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Matthew 24, 15 through 22. Jesus states further, and maybe yet more poignantly in Luke 21, 34 through 36, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, it sounds like in these passages that Jesus is telling us that in these days it's going to come, come quickly and at an hour we do not expect. Knowing what you know about your own heart and about the state of Christianity in America, how well do you think that we are in preparing for what is coming? I believe that we are asleep. I believe that the current state of the Christian in America is one of restful contentment, as if they have already entered the rest talked about in Scripture. Scripture. 
It is no surprise to me that many will fall away when the great tribulation comes. It will be such a shock to them who are unprepared. And this leads me to my next point. They have been lulled to sleep due to the rather subtle attacks of this world. As mentioned earlier, the tribulation talked about in Scripture is one of constant pressure. This pressure comes to us in all forms. The world offers us a culture that stands in direct opposition to the culture of the Christian. It is not as if they have to come up with this culture that is contrary to ours simply to be adversarial, but rather the culture of this world is the direct result of a depraved heart and mind. It is the only culture they can possibly have. Nonetheless, in every possible way, the culture of the world incorporates hatred for God. Therefore, as his people, we should expect to see this hatred in everything that the world produces. Every generation seems to have trouble accepting the changes that come in culture by younger generations. To use an example from pop culture music, the music of the 1950s may seem to be innocuous compared to the violent themes now performed by musicians of our day. But as innocent as the songs of the 1950s may seem to be, they are still the works of sinful men and therefore counterculture to the culture of, the, of Christianity. To give us a rather shallow litmus test concerning the music that we think is harmless, let me ask you this. Do you think that God enjoys pop music from the 1950s? If we are honest with ourselves, we have to answer no. Why doesn't he enjoy it? Well, among many reasons, it's not about him. In addition, it's not perfect. In fact, it's far from perfect. The point is, brethren, that we perceive a lot of things this world offers to us as seemingly harmless when, in fact, it is all part of the pressure that is constantly being applied to us that stands directly against what God desires of his people. From movies, to music, to sports, to fashion, to politics, to video games, to board games, to clubs, to business, to recreation, to amusement, and everything else under the sun. If it is of this world, it is no good in the eyes of God. And if so, it should also be no good in the eyes of God's people. <clears throat> And how much of this world's culture has infiltrated your life as a Christian? What do you find yourself enjoying the most when you're by yourself? Do you spend more time in God's word than you do with a good book? Do songs of praise to God adorn your lips, or are they more occupied with the feel-good favorites from yesterday and today? Would you rather watch a movie that does nothing but elevate the condition of mankind than meditate on the grand story of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, our actions give us away. We say we love God, and yet we would rather spend time with the world. If someone looked at our lives objectively, Would they say that we are a friend of God or a friend of the world? What evidence in our lives leads them to these conclusions? Have we been conformed to this world or have we been conformed to the image of Jesus Christ?
And I'm afraid that we have even more to worry about than just the world pressing in on us. The Bible says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Some of us, and probably all of us, have laid up treasures in this world that is destined to burn. The treasures of this world are sometimes easy to recognize. Other times they seem to be good at first inspection, but when one really analyzes how much time and effort is spent on these earthly treasures, it's easy to see that we have a problem with idolatry. Some of the earthly treasures include money and power, personal success, leisure, rest, and sleep, friends, and family. Concerning money and power and personal success, the Bible says this in Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And also, Luke 12, 15 through 21, And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What about leisure and rest? There are people in this world, and I have been one myself, that seek only to rest. We look for ways to get out of work so that we're able to take life easy. We spend a great deal of time waiting for bedtime. We get up late. We're grumpy when we get up. We would rather be sitting on a swing, folded up on the couch, lounging at the pool, soaking up rays at the beach, or anything else non-productive. And we spend a great deal of energy conserving our energy. For what? I don't know. Usually this attitude is a response to the toil of the curse. We don't like the labor that is involved in working. We don't like that the outcome is often inadequate to the task at hand. And our response then is to not do anything. We'd rather spend time doing nothing. And although the saying is true that nothing ventured is nothing gained, we don't seem to care. My mother recognized this flaw in my own character. And she would often quote to me Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It was this quoting of scripture that eventually changed my mind concerning how much rest I really needed. God granted me repentance. 
I began to see that although I needed rest, I also needed to apply my hands to work. What about our families? God does call on us to take care of our families. In fact, if we do not, we're considered to be worse than an unbeliever. But often we prize our families above God, and that's wicked. We lay up treasures here on earth and our families all the time. How much of your decision-making within your family planning is ultimately made by considering the possible effect on the members of your family? And when confronted with what you know God wants you to do and a different direction that benefits your family, seemingly, which one do you take? When we do things for the benefit of our family over what we know God wants us to do, we elevate our families over God. And if our rationale for doing so is because we're worried about the welfare of our family, what we're really saying is that we don't trust God to take care of our families when we obey him. When we choose to obey what he says. In Matthew 8, 18 through 22, it reads, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In addition, later in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do we love our parents more than we love God? Do we love our children more than we love God? If God would take our parents from us, would, we have take, would he have taken our whole world away from us? If God would take our children away from us, would we be lost in despair? My mother's 73rd birthday would have been this past Friday. She's not been gone even one year. In my daily prayer for my family, in that God will bless each person's day and grant them health and safety, I often have to rephrase my request. Because in the listing of my family, I still catch myself praying for my mother. To ask for my mom to be blessed is now a vain request. She is already blessed. She will never experience a day that she isn't blessed because she's with Jesus Christ. And that reminder in my prayer time allows me to see the correct priority of our families. Brethren, our families are temporary. They are tied with this world. And this world is passing away. Our earthly families are mere types and shadows of the real family of God. When with, with him at home, the old has passed away. My concern for the well-being and safety of my mother has passed. She was my mother for a time, but she was always the child of God. I would offer to you that although I prayed on the day of her death, that God would heal her and restore her to us, God had her best interest in mind by calling her home. I thought... I was praying for her good by keeping her here. 
God trumped my prayer because taking her home was the best thing for Donna Luke. If only we would trust God with our family members in the same way. I have news for us. He is going to do with them as he wishes, and he will do with us as he wishes as well. Jesus said that a person's enemies would eventually be the members of their own household. For those of us with unbelieving family members, this is true even now. Our established family roles in this world, whether wherein we care for our children and maybe later in life for our elderly parents, exist only here on earth. As far as we know, there are no children born in heaven, partially because there's no marriage in heaven. We know this. There is no need to care for the elderly because our bodies do not break down in age. We also do not need people to teach us about God in heaven because we are with God. These are just some of the responsibilities that are negated when we are in heaven. The only familial roles that matter in heaven is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son and elder brother, and the rest of us as the children of God. I think that if we would examine our lives, we would find many areas where we have chosen what is good, but not what is best. We may also not have trusted Solomon in his conclusion of denying himself nothing. We may have wanted to taste a bit of what the world offers and learn the hard way that this world does not satisfy. We have placed a bit of our treasure here on earth. And if you find yourself convicted of this, the good news is there is still time to repent. Above all things, the Christian is to prize Jesus Christ. I may not have hit today on where your personal treasure is laid, but if it is anything other than Jesus Christ, it is idolatry. Concerning what our priorities should be, God has said this in his word, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Also in Mark 10, it reads, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The people of the world chase after these things. They chase after these things because they don't chase after God. We observe them chasing. We observe them placing their treasure here on earth. I hope we will stop and consider the fate of everything that is planted here in this world before we decide to do the same. Lastly, I want us to consider the warning that Jesus gives the church in Ephesus. To this point, we have been talking about our own personal lives, but God gives serious consideration to the church and where it's placing its love. Would you turn again to Revelation 2, the description that we read this morning, the first seven verses. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The first thing I want us to look at in this passage is that they are praised for many things. I dare say that there are things that we would want to be praised for here at our own church. They are praised for being hard workers in the work of God. They are praised for being patient, for enduring hardships for the name of Christ, for not growing weary in doing so, for not tolerating evil, and for testing the doctrine of false apostles. This is a great list. As I said beforehand, we would be proud to have this spoken about us. I think we at Thornville try our best to be doctrinally sound, we haven't had to endure much hardship from persecution. I hope that we do not tolerate evil. And although that we are tired at times, I don't think that we have grown weary in the work of God. I would think that most churches today, like us, would be happy to have the spoken of them. Yet Jesus calls them out for something more important than this really good list. He tells them that they have abandoned the love they had at first. In other words, all the good things that they were doing were all being done without love for Christ. Now you may say, 
how could they be doctrinally sound without love for Christ? And I would venture that they could be trying to be doctrinally sound just for the sake of being correct. You know, the desire to be right and correct when it comes to God's word is a noble desire. But if being correct is the only reason, and not because we want to be correct so as to please Jesus Christ, we have a very serious problem. We have made the pursuit of knowledge of the word of God the most important thing, and not the fact that as we learn about him through his word, we may worship him more appropriately and love him more. The pursuit of knowledge for the sake of correctness grants the pursuer pride. Whereas the pursuit of knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we may worship him better grants the pursuer humility. The people of the church of Ephesus were people who were united together more for the cause of Christ than for Christ himself. They had abandoned Christ while doing very honorable things. And the penalty for this church, if they had not repented of their ways, would have been the removal of their lampstand. And in other words, they would no longer be a real church. Jesus calls on them to do the things they did at first. The list of things that they were doing were not the things that Jesus desired of them. And I want you to see here that although they did not call them to, he did not call them to abandon those things that they were currently doing. Rather, he wanted them to do those things that they did at first, along with this positive list of things that they were currently doing. A church that is not focused on the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ is a church in name only. The primary reason for a church to exist is not for the edification of the saints within, nor is it to stand in opposition to the culture that surrounds it, guarding its doors against heresy and providing sanctuary for its members from the errors of doctrine. It is not the primary reason for a church to exist, for it to be involved in services to the poor and needy and special programs for the youth. The primary reason for any true church to exist is for the praise, honor, and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 10, 38-42 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Brethren, when our church makes the decision to do things apart from the worship of Jesus Christ as our focus, we have chosen the same error that Martha chose. Mary has chosen the good portion. Let us do likewise. I must admit to you that I struggle with the same things. <clears throat> the allure of this world appeals greatly to another enemy of our souls, our flesh. The world calls out, offering its wares, its distractions, its treasures, and the flesh responds. It wants what the world has to offer. The flesh longs to have something else placed where God has designed for himself within our soul. And I have to wonder how much of our lives are spent trying to fit a world-shaped peg 
into a God-shaped hole. It's futility, really. Nothing other than God placed in that hole within our souls ever satisfies. Yet this world also has a numbing effect. We may have tried to place something in that hole a long time ago and forgotten about our first love. Maybe what we placed there has been there for a long time. Maybe we have tried different things, swapping one for another, always thirsting and never ever having that thirst quenched. You know, if you live with something long enough, so you sometimes forget that it's there. My question to you and to myself this morning, have we forsaken and abandoned our first love? We need to do some serious reflection on the choices that we have made. How will we explain our absent love for Christ as we stand in front of him someday? I am worried that our lampstand here at Thornville will be taken from us. We pride ourselves on being doctrinally correct. I would rather us be known for our love for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you outside of the kingdom of God, I would offer to you that your searching for something to fill the emptiness within you could be over today if you call upon Jesus to save you. Currently, as an unbeliever, you've been living within a world that is at odds with God. and You may not know it, but because of that, God is at odds with you. Now, you may think that you're at peace with this world and you don't really want to change anything, but the reality is you are changing. You are getting older, and someday you will die. You won't be able to take any of this world with you. All of your possessions stay here. All of your family and friends stay here. You, however, will not stay here. God has declared that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Having not been able to take any of your riches, and having no friends or family to stand and advocate for you, how will this time of judgment go for you? When you are asked by God, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? The best you can offer is nothing. But by saying so, you actually confirm the worst, that you have spent your entire life hating him. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Repent now while you still have time. God has determined the day in which he will stop striving with the spirits of mankind. He has also determined the day that you will meet him when you die. And that day might be much sooner than you think or hope. You have this moment right now. You are not guaranteed the next. Call out for mercy and grace today, and he will answer. He will instill in you a heart of love for Jesus Christ. And you will never be the same again. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and where we as your people may have put things above him in our worship. I pray that you will grant us repentance and that you'll forgive us.
Help us, Lord, in our country of plenty, in a country that you have granted so many blessings, to not be caught in the allure of those blessings, but to look to the person who gives the blessings. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you'll work in our hearts today. Grant us the faith that we need. Grant us repentance. And grant us love for Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 381 in the hymnal. Shall we stand as we sing?
Lord, we do pray that our hearts can see and understand that there is a difference between what this world offers and what you have offered to us. Draw us near to yourself, Lord. We desire to be a godly people. We pray thy blessing upon this service, upon your word, and upon the activities of this day. Lord, before us, go before us and help us, Lord, as we intend to take the Lord's table together. We pray that you would bless that time centered around your death, burial, and resurrection. How we pray for that memorial service. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Be a ten-minute break. Then come back when you're.